You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous, righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but oh, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. It's great to see you. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here. Really, really grateful that you've joined us tonight. We don't think that that is an accident. We don't think that that just sort of happened. No, we believe that God is orchestrating all things together for his glory and for your good. And so that includes you being here tonight. Hey, before we get started, I want to do one thing. Um, If you were with us last week during our Um, 10th anniversary celebration, or even if you weren't, I want us now to give Nikki a round of applause. Thank you, Nikki. She did a wonderful job, worked like a dog, and got it done. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We want to honor you, um, even in this small way. I grew up in the church. Every time the doors were open, I was there. I was there every time the doors were open. One of my oldest memories kind of in church life was really struggling with understanding the morality of certain Old Testament figures. Now, when I was like nine, I wouldn't have thought about it in those terms, but I had a really hard time understanding why God would love Abraham, for example, who only basically sold his wife twice because he was afraid. Or, or David, as an example, who commits adultery with his friend's wife and then has the friend Uriah killed. Like, why would, what? Why would, why would God love those people? In particular, you think about Abraham. Abraham's a big deal. So is David. And yet the morality of these guys is, is at best questionable. I had a hard time with that. I, I concluded that, like, hey, if, if God loved them... He must really love me, not because he is love and his character, but because I've never done anything like that. So that seed of moralism got planted in my heart when I was 
was just a kid, and it led to self-righteousness and pride in all kinds of ways. And many of you here would, would point out that there's a myriad of problems that come with self-righteousness. But for our time, I mean, I would agree with that. But for our time, I want to focus on one. One, what, is, what, is, what does moralism do? Again, it does all kinds of things, but for our time, it changes the story of the gospel. It changes the story. In other words, one of the reasons that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is so powerful is that it illustrates how God rescues his people. This is a biblical theme that starts in the beginning, it goes all the way to the end, and it finds its culmination or completion in Christ. God rescues his people. But moralism takes the power away from that story because it introduces a type of a type of active work on my part. So you think about it like this, like a story where I rescue myself or at least play a hand in rescuing myself is far less compelling than a story where God moves heaven and earth, loses his son to rescue me. It changes the story. It changes the story. I'm going to trip on that. Let's uh, move that out of the way <laughs> before that happens. So in my life, I remember hearing, actually, no, Ryan, let me reframe your thinking from somebody. The gospel is actually not just for the lost. It's for you as a saved person. It's not just for the irreligious. It's for the religious. It's for you. It's for your Pharisee heart, Ryan. So I remember thinking, um, that's surprising to me. I remember thinking, like, I've, I've been a believer for a while. Why haven't I heard that? And then, probably the better question, like, where does the word teach that? Where would I find something like that that would tell me, no, no actually, the gospel is good news for you when you're, a, when you're already a Christian? Well, one of those places is here in Romans 2. The gospel is not only good news for the irreligious, like we saw in Romans 1, if you were with us a few weeks ago, also for the religious here in Romans 2. So with that said, I want you to see two points uh, from the text this evening. First, the danger of self-righteousness. The danger of self-righteousness. And second, works as evidence of faith. Works as evidence of faith. Of faith. Before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, you are good. You are good and you are with us. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent us your Son. Thank you that you have sent us your Spirit. Thank you that you are actively engaging with us here through, 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 through worship and through the, your Word and later through communion. God, you are here with us in our midst. I pray that you would move in power that you would melt hard hearts, that you would open deaf ears, that you would open our eyes, God, that we would see wonders in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A little bit of context. Romans has a discernible structure. Remember, it's a letter. Paul wrote it to the church in Rome. It wasn't originally broken up into chapters and verses. That came much later. Instead, there is an internal structure and argument that Paul makes throughout the letter. 
And in the early chapters of Romans, Paul is arguing that all people, Jew and Gentile, are guilty of sin. Guilty. In other words, Paul's opening critique in Romans is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's designed to put us all in the same position, whether you're irreligious, like the younger brother in Luke 15 and the the prodigal son parable, or religious, the, the older brother in that parable. It doesn't matter what Paul is going for, what he's He's telling us a story where we're all guilty and our only hope, no matter who you are, is Jesus. Your only hope, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, is Christ. He's the remedy for everyone. As we work through these first couple, first few um, chapters in Romans, that will become clear. So first, in terms of points, the danger of self-righteousness. There is great temptation for Christians, for church people, to read Romans 1 like we have and apply it to the world and our culture in such a way that creates or breeds self-righteousness. Now, it doesn't have to do that, obviously, but there is a way that, that, that the religious mind can look at Romans 1 and apply it in a way that's unproductive and self-righteous. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be wary of the world. In fact, you should be wary of the world. One of the pressing issues that we will face in the days to come is how, how will you engage with the culture? But here Paul's point is not that we should uncritically embrace the world. No, not at all. Rather, he's saying that you shouldn't be proud of yourself, coming out of Romans 1, for rejecting culture and the things of the world. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul anticipates this spark of self-righteousness coming out of chapter 1 and instantly pours cold water on it. No. Don't do that. There's no life in that direction. So let's think critically together about verse 1 because there's great opportunity for misunderstanding what Paul is talking about. What is he saying? What does he mean by passing judgment? Is he saying that there's no standard for right or wrong? That we shouldn't claim that certain, certain things are morally right or morally wrong or that even categories like right and wrong exist at all? Is Paul a precursor to relativism and the deification of self that we see in our culture now? No, he's not doing any of that. So what is he saying? What is he teaching? He's not saying that we don't make right or wrong decisions or judgments. You can't read Romans 1 that appeals to the order with which God has created the world the goodness of God's plan, and then conclude here in chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul, like, changed his mind. No, that's not going to work. Instead, the idea of passing judgment here has to do with an internal attitude of judging another person so that you feel better about yourself. This comparative attitude that pushes another person down to inflate one's sense of self or ego. You see, the scripture everywhere 
utterly rejects this kind of judging or passing judgment. Think about the, a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, where you have a tax collector and a Pharisee in the temple. The, the latter, the, ter, the, the, tax, excuse me, the Pharisee in the temple prays out loud, Thank you, God, that you haven't made me like other men. I do all these things for you. Thank you, God, that I'm, I'm better than the tax collector over there. Like you look at that, I, I look at that, and I just go, yuck, that's gross. But at the end of that parable, what does it say? It says the tax collector, not the Pharisee, the tax collector goes home justified. Goes home justified. Another example, in John chapter 8, a bunch of religious leaders drag this, this woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they're going to stone her. And he, 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 he looks at them, shines the spotlight that they meant for her on them and says, hey, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And in a moment of honesty, perhaps, or clarity, they all leave because they know that they can't pass that test. Now, let's be clear about that interaction. This is not Jesus looking the other way at her sin. It's not him taking it lightly. In fact, he tells her, go and sin no more. I would suggest to you that John wants us to see in this interaction that Jesus rejects self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizing, the hypocrisy that the scribes and the Pharisees displayed in the, in the story. It's the same idea here in Romans 2. It's the same idea in Luke 18. Self-righteousness gets in our way. It actually blinds us to our own blindness. It blinds you to your own sin by focusing on somebody else's sin, and not in a way that's helpful for them, like I want to help you with your sin. No, no, it's, it blinds you because I, in my self-righteousness, I want to hold you down, and by consequence, I'm going to feel better about myself. This is what he has in view in Romans 2, and says, that is not going to work. In fact, you do the same things you look back up in Romans 1, you'll notice in 29 and 30, most of what's happening there are internal attitudes that Paul is referencing as bad things, as anti-kingdom things. Self-righteousness blinds us. It also, it also creates arbitrary standards that we build for other people but don't quite hold up ourselves. The late pastor John Stott said it this way, we work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. You know how this works. I know how it's minimizing. It's, it's blame-shifting. It's, it's justifying. It's kind of like letting yourself off the hook when you would not do that for another person. Now, as you examine your life and you, and you, and you find elements of, of that kind of self-righteousness in your heart, what should you do? As I was getting ready this week, I was wrestling with that myself. And the, it's, it's very, very clear. It's, it's repent. It's repent of my pride. It's repent of self-righteousness. It's turn away from my sin and throw myself on the mercy of Christ. It's doing, if you have your Bible, what the tax collector in that parable in Luke 18 does. What does it say? It says he beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. 
and he walked away justified. So if you're feeling a sense of conviction over self-righteousness, be like the tax collector. Repent. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and find that he's gracious and that he's merciful and that he welcomes you with with open arms. This type of attitude, this self-righteousness that we see here, it's like all sin in the sense that it's not static. It's not standing still. It's going somewhere. It has a trajectory. Where's it going? Paul tells us down in verse 5. Look at me there. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the end of self-serving self-righteousness is God's wrath. That's where it's going. That's the trajectory. This is why self-righteousness is ultimately dangerous. It's dangerous to, to pass judgment on other people to feel better about yourself. It's not a joke. It's not harmless. No, actually what Paul is saying, this kind of attitude puts you in position, in danger of facing the righteous judgment of God. Now, another of Jesus' parables, the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son in Luke 15, helps us understand Paul's argument here. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn over to Luke 15. And if you, you'll notice, at the top of the chapter in Luke 15, he's He's, he's telling this, these series of stories to a mixed crowd. I say mixed crowd. There were Pharisees and there were sinners present. It's similar to what's happening in Romans so far. Romans 1 is talking to the sinners of the crew and Romans 2, the Pharisees. There's a mixed crowd happening. So you get to, you get to the third story in Luke 15 and you've got... These two sons, the younger son comes to his father and says, hey, I want my money, I want to go, and he goes out. And before too long, he realizes that, you know, what I've got going on is not working. It's just not working. And he, he, he returns to his father. He's got his whole speech ready, he's going to be a servant, not a son. And what does the father do? The text in Luke says, it saw him from a long way away and ran to him. He ran to him. He put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back, which are clues for favor. He's being welcomed back in as a son. Next, dad throws him a party because he's back and he's so excited that he's back. What about the older, the older brother, the other brother who stayed the whole time, who was working the whole time? Where is he when this whole thing is happening? Well, he, we're told that he is outside pouting. He's bitter. He's angry that his father was kind to his younger brother. And the father goes to him. He goes to him and he pleads with him. He invites him back in. He doesn't go back in. So when you think about parables, typically the way a parable ends is the overarching point. Like how it ends is what you want to take away. The parable of the prodigal son or the two sons ends with the younger son in the party in the presence of his father and the older son out in the dark alone. Self-righteousness is dangerous. It's dangerous. What's the point? It also will lead you away from God. Tim Keller says it this way. 
Self-righteous religion is just as much a rejection of God as a misunderstanding of his character as the self-centered irreligion of the end of Romans chapter 1. Self-righteousness is dangerous. Let's brainstorm together about how self-righteousness can manifest itself in your life. Sometimes, um, if you grew up in a church like me, when you think about self-righteousness, or I even say that word, and the first thing that goes into my mind is the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18. And I think about self-righteousness with that as the only category. It's overt, it's obnoxious, it's, when you read it, it's like gross, and it's very much like in your face. Like you read Luke 18 and you go, oh yeah, I get the point. I don't want to be like the Pharisee. But I want to suggest to you that it's more than that. It's actually sneaky in certain ways. And, and also, our culture in a way teaches you to be self-righteousness, to be self-righteous. A couple of ideas. How does that happen? First, tribalism. Tribalism. So our culture is tribal in the sense that it creates groups of people that are at odds with other groups of people. All at the same time, both groups think they have the moral high ground over the other group. In other words, both groups think they're better than the other group, or all groups. There's, there's more than two in some cases. The culture is training us to think this way, to think that you're better than somebody you disagree with. Tribalism trains you to attribute goodness and righteousness and value, like personal value, based on political or social issues, based on who you voted for, based on what you think about COVID and its effects and how people have responded to it, based on all sorts of things. Tribalism sets up arbitrary purity tests that people have to pass or fail based on one or another's perspective. I want to suggest to you that this is the type of self-righteousness that leads to the type of judgment that Paul rejects here. That he rejects here. That I actually place value on a position that I hold or, or something that I believe that I use as goodness to validate myself against somebody else. Tribalism. Another, another idea of how the culture, in my view, teaches us to be self-righteous. Over-inflating preferences. Over-inflating preferences. Now listen, everybody has preferences. I, I have preferences. And you know what? I like my preferences. <laughs> that's kind of the point. And that's fine. The problem is, when our preferences get over-inflated and become sources of pride and self-righteousness and goodness, areas, again, where I place value in a, a, something that I prefer over something else. Instead of allowing preferences to be over-inflated and breed division, you see that all over the place, we have to keep them where they belong. You say, great, Ryan. How? How? I mean, there might be many answers to that question. I want to give you one for our time. By interacting with people who have a different position than you, people you disagree with, with charity, with kindness, believing the best about them, their intent, or 
understanding their position in such a way that they would affirm your understanding of it. Does that make sense? No time for strawmanning people. Kindness, charity. Can I, can I suggest to you that our culture really struggles with that? Like a lot. But as believers, as believers, we can struggle, sure. But we're called to something better. To charity, to kindness, to interacting with people with whom we disagree that they might see Jesus in us. There's a kingdom ethic in there somewhere. When I interact with someone that I maybe have a serious disagreement with, but, but I do that with charity and kindness. There's only one place to find actual righteousness, friends, and that's, and that's Jesus. It's through faith in him that his righteousness is yours. Nowhere else is going to give you righteousness that's actually meaningful other than Christ. And that's what Paul said back in Romans 1.17 when he said that the righteous live by faith. The righteous live by faith. Paul will continue to return this theme throughout Romans or use it as a way of understanding other texts in Romans. So one of those instances where Romans 1, 16 and 17 that we, we, we heard several weeks ago, that the righteous live by faith in, in Christ, helps us understand what Paul is saying here in our text in Romans 2, specifically in verses 6 through 8. So that brings me to my second point that I want you to see this evening. Works as evidence of faith. Works as evidence of faith. Look with me at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay. There is great opportunity to read works righteousness in the Paul here. Like if you just read Romans 2, 6, you would conclude, oh boy, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got a lot of work to do. You might feel uneasy about Romans 2, 6 or feel the weight of what it might mean that God treats you according to your righteousness. He accepts you or rejects you based on that. So let me, let me say... They claim out of the gate here that Paul is not teaching works righteousness in Romans 2, 6 to 8. That's not what he's doing. How do we know? Okay, first. Because he's already said in Romans, much less everywhere else in his writing, that righteousness, like your right standing before God, is given to you through faith. It's given to you through faith. That's what he said in Romans 1, 16 and 17. In other words, when you think about rightly interpreting a text, whether it's the Bible or something else, one of the things that we've got to really, really do a good job of and understand is that as a reader, I have to respect the author's meaning. What does the author mean? Now, I can read something and interpret it, but that's not the same as 
meaning. As the reader, if I read Romans, I cannot say that it means something different than what Paul intended it to mean. I need to respect the author. He's the one who dictates its meaning. So in this case, Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, 20 verses earlier said that righteousness comes through faith. And so now in chapter 2, 1, I would suggest to you that he cannot be contradicting himself by saying that actually, no, righteousness comes through works. You see how there's a disconnect there? This, to, to, to claim something else, in, in, in my view, would undercut or even disrespect Paul by pitting him against himself. Which one do I take? Do I take Romans 1 or Romans 2? Remember, we're talking about a letter here. Paul's not intending to confuse people. He's not intending for the church in Rome to take sides. Rather, he's explaining the mysteries of God. What do we do instead? Or how do we help Paul? How do we help bring these two ideas together? Well, I would suggest to you that we, we, have, we ask Paul to help us interpret Paul. Or we help have Romans help us interpret Romans. Or we have the Bible help us interpret the Bible. There's a, there's a cohesion that is incredibly important here in Romans 1 and 2. But also, in, in many, many other places, there's an there's a interpretive or hermeneutical principle that we need in order to rightly understand. And it is that the Bible helps us interpret the Bible. The Scripture helps us interpret the Scripture. How? Like, you already said that. Okay. When you take a... a, a when you arrive at a, a less clear text, maybe something that's confusing, like we can say... Like, there are passages in the Bible that you read, and you're like, yeah, I think I know what that means. Then there are others that you read, and you go, oh, my goodness, I have no idea what that means. As an example, if, if you got dropped out of a spaceship, if that's a thing, and, and you read Revelation 12, and it's talking about a dragon and a woman and all these things, you would have no idea what that means. No idea. No clue. But... If, if you also had the narratives in the gospel accounts that talk about the Christmas story and some other places, those, and, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, some of these other texts that are more straightforward, they're more clear, they would help you interpret Revelation 12. It would help you. The, the clear text helps me with the less clear text. So here, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the righteous live by faith helps me understand Romans 2, 6 through 8. They have to work together. Romans 1 helps me understand Romans 2. So if he's not teaching that works righteousness um, is how you get saved here in Romans 2, 6, what's he saying? Well, I'd suggest to you he's, he, he's, he's doing what the book of James does. Faith without works is dead. Or certain, certain, certain ideas or, or practices in the Old Testament like the sacrificial system. Paul is teaching us that real faith in God, like the real thing, evidences or shows itself in good works. This is the point in James that real faith 
it works, it does stuff. Or that good works flow from faith. It's not either or, it's not a dichotomy, it's not pick one, no, it's both. And it's actually one faith preceding the other works. And there's a straight line between the two. So in verse 7, look back with me, when Paul says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. All of that good action or work on, on, on your part, on the Christians in Rome's part, proceed from faith. Proceed from faith. In other words, you would not pursue those good things, obedience to the Lord, apart from faith in Him. Another example. I mentioned it just in passing. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, you have an agrarian society where God comes to His people and says, I need you to sacrifice to me your, your most valuable asset. Okay, what does that mean? So if you're a, if you're a rancher, it's like your firstborn livestock animal. If you're a farmer, it's, it's your, the first, uh, first crops, your, your best produce. Sacrifice that to me. Why would God do that? In particular, when the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Seems weird. Seems arbitrary. What's the point? The point is that faith proceeds works. For the farmer or rancher to give up his most valuable asset, whether it's a bull or, or produce, for him to do that is to believe that God is going to take care of him without that animal or without the produce. Faith precedes works or, or, or works flow from faith. But there's another side of the coin. Look with me at verse 8. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So if seeking the Lord through good works flows from faith, then seeking self flows from something else. It flows from something else. And listen, the impulse for self-service here to throw off the authority of God and do whatever you want is an old problem. Really old. In fact, ultimately in the garden, Adam and Eve decide that they know better than God than God and follow a self-seeking impulse into sin. Paul is pointing out what Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, that you will know a tree by its fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. But in verse 7, those who are righteous by faith demonstrate their faith through good works and obedience to the truth, while those in verse 8 reject obedience to the truth through self-seeking, self-glory, self-aggrandizing, self-centeredness. I would suggest to you that the preoccupation with self that we see perhaps here and, and certainly now in our culture is bad fruit. It's bad fruit. It leads, it can lead a person away from the truth of God and ultimately in Romans, ultimately to a place of wrath and fury. 
the truth is that God, as the creator, as the, as the, as the, the maker of everything, has authority. He has authority. He has authority over me. He has authority over you. He has authority over the internal self. The internal self. That in our culture, again, is, is deified and is, is considered unassailable in many, many ways. But God, as the creator, reigns and rules, has authority over everything that he's created. Everyone he's created. You, me, all of it. Jesus is the king, and he reigns and he rules. He reigns and he rules. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper uh, talks about this idea this way. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. Jesus claims authority. He claims authority over me, over you over the internal self, over everything. So verse 7 and 8, they're like a mirror. They're like a mirror. They force me, they force you to look deeply at what's actually there. What's actually there? What's actually there? When you think about your life, what's actually there? Do you see evidence of faith in good works? in obedience to God, in actively fighting against your sin, fighting to obey Jesus, in particular, in particular, where you struggle. Where you struggle. Listen, there's, there's a great opportunity when we talk about authority, and we talk about judgment, and we talk about wrath, and we talk about all these things, to think about God as like a cosmic hall monitor or some vicious king who's just like beating us down and holding us down. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The same God and Jesus that Paul is talking about here with reference to his, to, 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 to his authority and what's happening is the same Jesus who says, Come to me, all who are weary, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For my yoke is, is easy and my burden light. The yoke is easy and my burden light. Is light. So when you feel this, the, the pressure of Romans 2, 7, and 8, there's great opportunity to look at my life, look at your life, and go, like, do I see evidence of faith? I, I, maybe? Or, or sometimes? But the point is that when, I'm, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I encounter that pressure, that the text puts on me. What I do in response to that is really important. Now, does what I do give me favor with God? No. But what I do is it helps me either turn to Christ, who is gentle and lowly, who will help me, who will build my faith, who will build my affections for him. Like, think about it. When you think about your life, when you think about all the ways that you struggle with sin, or even more, more plainly here, like when I choose my sin, like I choose it, I know what I'm doing and I choose it. In that context, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all who are weary. He says, come to me. He doesn't be, he's not vindictive with me. He doesn't hold it over my head. He's like, hey, you remember on Wednesday when you chose your sin over me? I'm going to make you pay for that. No, no, not at all. He says, come to me. He says, turn to me. 
He says, experience the goodness of my love. Listen, friends, when you see with greater clarity how much God loves you, like what his love is actually like for you in the midst of all of your sin, all the times you choose it, when you see that with new eyes, that will change your life. Like that's not a joke and it's not me being hyperbolic. God's love for you can utterly change you. Like, what do you think Paul means when he says, hey, in Christ, you're a new creation? Is that just like spiritual talk or does that have actual teeth? Does that mean anything? I want to suggest to you, it means something. It means that in Christ, when he says you're new, you're new. In the midst of your sin, he says, come to me. He says, come to me. So I can like, Punch you? No, of course not. So I can bring you close. So, I, so you can see my heart for you. But another example, in, in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, where Laodicea is probably the most famous of those letters. You, you hear about, oh, they're lukewarm, Jesus spit, them out, spit you out of your mouth, that whole thing. It's in that context where there's another famous passage where we find Jesus saying, I'm at, I'm at the door knocking. I'm at, the, I'm at your heart knocking. Think about this. He's talking to the church in Laodicea for which he has the strongest rebuke. You're lukewarm. You look a lot like Babylon. You don't look like my people. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But if you repent, if you turn to me, if you come to me, where am I? I'm at the door of your heart knocking. Jesus pursuing the church in Laodicea in the midst of their lukewarmness, in the midst of the fact that they love Babylon, Rome, Jesus pursued them. So when you think about your life, think about the author of Hebrews who says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, he's the same today, he's the same forever. That's how he treats you in your sin. He pursues you. He's at the door of your heart knocking. When we think about love like that, and we see it with the eyes of faith, we change. We change. These first couple chapters, three chapters in Romans, highlight how important Jesus is for everyone. For everyone. Remember Paul's opening critique. Everyone is guilty, and our only hope is Christ. Paul's point, whether you're irreligious in Romans 1 or religious Romans 2, you need Jesus. You need the Savior who pursues you in the midst of your sin. You need the Savior who loves you the same when you choose sin over him. You need Jesus who's at the door of your heart knocking right now. And I'll suggest to you, like, if you're feeling convicted or if you're feeling like, man, I don't, I, I just, I need Jesus. Yeah, you do. That's a good thing. Open the door. Invite him in. What does that even mean, Ryan? It means just sitting quietly and saying, Jesus, help me. Help me. Change my heart. Stir my affection for you. Help me see you clearly in the midst of all of the confusion and all of the, all of the nonsense that I have to mess with in my life. Help me to see you and your love for me. Do that. You think he's not going to answer that prayer? He will. Now, he might answer that in a surprising way. But God is, God is mysterious. Friends, if you walk away with anything from Romans 2, 
anything at all, remember that your only hope is in Jesus. It's not in self-righteousness or any of these compartments or ideas, practices that cultures of antiquity would say, yeah, you're righteous because of that. Or modern cultures, you're righteous because of that. No, you're righteous because of Jesus. That's it. Take away from Romans 2, you need Christ. When you see his love for you, I've said this a bunch, but it's really, really important. And I'm not sure we're the best at it. So let's, let's do it again and we'll be done. How do I grow? How do I change? How does the gospel actually affect me? What, what is that about? Well, I need, you need, we need our, our affection for the Lord to be stirred. Like, I can't do that myself. It's not something I can do. It's not something you can do. Like, oh, I'm just, just going to stir my affection for God today. No. You need him to, to, to come upon you. What does that mean? It means you need to see his love for you with great clarity. Because it's his love for you that creates or cultivates intimacy with him that leads you to love him more. You can't love him more unless you see his love for you. I need my affections to be stirred for him. I need him to change my heart. This is not like a self-help project. I can't like do that myself. I need to put myself in humility before God. You, in humility before the Lord and say, Father, help me to see your love for me. Help me. Help me to see it in your word. Help me to see it through uh, life in the body. Help me to see it in my life. He will. And as you see his love for you, your love for him will grow. And, it, and as that happens, Romans 6, 7, and 8 will make a lot more sense. Because you'll start to see good works, obedience, all of this evidence of faith, of deeply held affections for Jesus that change you. Change you. Let's pray.